Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to tune in to this week's message. Amen. Amen. Aren't you so excited about what God's doing in the life of our church? Wasn't last week amazing? Let's just give God praise for what he did, not just in this room last week, but all throughout the week. We're so uh, delighted and excited that God is blessing, and uh, what an opportunity we have before us to continue to see Jesus Christ transform the people that mean the most to us. And uh, we're glad that you're here. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you, my name is Pastor Craig, and just on behalf of our whole team, we do indeed welcome you, as you already heard from Pastor Chad. And um, we're glad that you're here. We don't think it's an accident. We know that uh, in a day and age where the enemy is literally devouring and on a prowl, seeking to devour whom he may, that when we come together on gatherings like this, uh, there's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. We're not playing, are we? We've been entertained for far too long. But Jesus is alive. Jesus is doing a great work in the earth. And I just don't want to miss the hour, do you? I want to be right in the middle of what God is doing. And uh, we are spirit-filled people who believe that the Spirit of God wants to minister to you today. And right there where you're seated today, if you open your heart wide, I believe that God will uh, actively search you out and seek to minister to your life. You know, He does indeed do this. And... uh, we're glad that you're here. If you came in this morning and you happened to bypass uh, getting a, a message card, you can raise your hand, and one of our ushers will help you. Yeah, I see a few hands just as a message guide to help you through the Word today. We're starting a brand new series called Pain Management, and uh, I've got to be honest with you, this week was uh, very interesting as it relates to preparation. I usually give one long extended block of preparation until something fires, something lights, and uh, I try to give a broad scope of studying, and then I just begin to kind of marinate, allow it to marinate all week. And so this week, uh, Wednesday was that day, and I probably spent about 10 hours straight just reading and studying and praying and listening, God, what do you want to speak? And I found myself immediately wanting to go to diagnostic mode. Diagnose for people while they're going through problems. Tell them about seizing the opportunity of the crisis and I found myself constantly going there, and then the Lord would not allow it. It just didn't come alive. And so I said, okay, God, I'll wait. So my kids went on to bed, and Wednesday night, I stayed up, I think, from 12 to 4 and said, God, I got to hear. Let's let something fire, and it's the same way. And so I went ahead and just did what I'd been studying, and then yesterday, it came alive like a bubbling cauldron. And any of you have preached or taught before in the past, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I believe that God has a specific word. It's not an easy word this morning, but it'll be like fresh baked bread out of the oven, all right? It's not going to tickle, but it'll fill your belly, all right? And I believe that God wants to speak to us. If you're ready, just say, I'm ready. The, the title of this message today is The Purpose Behind the Pain. The Purpose Behind the Pain. We're going to start with a question. When in the Bible did God ever give anyone an easy job? You ask that question. Think about that. Like when did God ever come to someone and say, hey, I have a job for you, but hey, don't worry. It's not going to take a lot of time. It's not going to be real difficult. You're going to be able to live in self-sufficiency for most of this journey. And uh, it's not, you're not going to be scared. You're not going to be fearful. You're not going to have trial and tribulation. It's not going to be difficult at all. The answer to that would be never. He's never done that, Right? He comes to a guy by the name of Noah and says, Noah, I got a job for you. I want to start a civilization all over again. 
And uh, in order to do that, I'm going to use you and your family. And so I want you um, to build an ark. 120 years, by the way. Get on the ark. No, you've never seen rain come from the sky before. But I want you to survive the flood. I'm going to start all over with you, Noah. But don't worry. You're not going to be alone. I'm going to give you a sign of my presence and my promise. And you remember what the sign was? It was a rainbow. He comes to a man by the name of Abram and says, Abram, I've got a job for you. I want to start a whole new people. It's called the church. It's going to be ultimately fulfilled later in the day of Pentecost. But right now, you're going to be the father of many nations. So I want you to leave everything you're familiar with. And I want you to go to this land. I'm, in fact, not going to tell you when you arrive, uh, when, where you're going. But when you get there, I'll tell you that you're there. Just go. And Abraham, don't worry. You're not going to be alone. I'm going to give you a sign of my promise. A sign of my presence. And you remember what the sign was? It was circumcision. And Abraham said, Noah got the rainbow. Could we do like a decoder ring or secret handshake here, God? Like, come on, come on, God. You know, like, and, and so no, it was, it was circumcision. Life's not fair. He, he comes to Moses and Moses and says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet. And I want you to defy him to his face and tell him to let my people go. Nehemiah has to go back and rebuild a city when it's been in ruins. David takes on Goliath, a nine-foot-nine giant from Gath. Esther risks her life to change the mind of the king. Joseph would go to prison. David's thrown in the lion's den. And the ultimate assignment for Jesus was on the cross. What are you saying, Craig? Over and over again throughout Scripture, we see that God calls people to unbelievable lives where there's trial, where there's adversity, where there's crisis. And so the natural question, I guess, to ask in the midst of this series is why is life sometimes so difficult? Why is there so much crisis? Why is there so much adversity? Well, of course, we have all kinds of different pain. We have pain that's self-inflicted. We have sin that has so made an indelible mark on this earth that the repercussions of pain are felt everywhere. Cancer, agents, issues dealing with our body, relationships, but nonetheless, it's still pain. And then there's broken people. But I think it might be a little bit deeper than that because when you look at Scripture, what you'll discover is that God cares more about who we're becoming than where we're going. God cares about who we're becoming more than what even we're achieving. So what I want to do for the next few moments, just using the story of Joseph, just as an intro, we're going to spend most of our time in 1 Peter 4 today, but I love Joseph's, Joseph's story because it's it's a story of our lives. It gives me so much hope. It's a back and forth story. Just when he thinks his life is full of good news, he gets bad news. And when he thinks something bad's going to happen, something good happens. And then now he's on a streak of good things and something bad takes place again. So I want you to help me just a minute tell the story. Kind of split the room in half if you're Miss Dorothy over to the right. You guys are good news. When I point to you, say good news. Over here, when I point to you, say bad news. All right? Everybody got that? Real simple, okay? So think about this. The story of Joseph, Genesis 37, we're told that he's his daddy's favorite. That would be? But we also read that his brothers hate him and are jealous of him. That would be? But you keep going in the story, we find out he gets a really cool, colorful coat from his dad. That would be? But his brothers rip it off of him, beat him, sell him into slavery. That would be? Very bad news. But he goes to work for a guy by the name of Potter for this kind of high-ranking Egyptian official. And plus, Scripture tells us kind of odd that he's a really, really good-looking guy, right? This guy's a really good-looking guy. And uh, that would be, some of you ladies, that would be really. But his boss's wife, Potiphar's wife, this, uh, tries to seduce Joseph, which would be. Some of you aren't really sure. That's really bad news, okay? That's really, 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 really bad news. But he resists her. That's. But she makes up a story that he raped her and he gets framed and sentenced and thrown into prison, which would be? 
You get what I'm talking about. This is life. This is life. Good news, bad news. Good news, bad news. Good news, bad news. You got news that you're pregnant. You're so excited. Weeks later, you have a miscarriage. You're so excited about the new job. You can't believe you got this job. You got it. You got the promotion. Months later, you get a round of layoffs. You've been there in life, haven't you? Where you had some great thing that happens and things seem to be going so well. And then all of a sudden it feels like the carpet gets pulled out from under you. And so you know about this. You know what it feels like. And the question that I want to ask you today is, what would you do in your life if you were absolutely confident that God was with you? Because here's the challenge. As Christ's followers... When transition happens from things going really well to really bad, we begin to think that God is not in that situation. And most of our life is not framed by what happens to us, but how we respond in those moments. How we respond in those situations. So we're set up for combat right from the bat. Sometimes we often get good news and then we get bad news. And, and Joseph gets thrown into the pit. He shares the good news and he's thrown into the pit. And I think one of the greatest illusions of life is this illusion of control. Like we're in control. Imagine how Joseph must have felt when he was sitting at the bottom of the pit. Why me? Why am I going through this? You've been there. You've been laying in your bed at night, staring up at the darkness and saying, God, why me? God, why my marriage? God, why my finances? God, why my family? Why my husband? Why my career? Why our house? Why are we going through this? And what happens is when life doesn't turn out the way we want it to, we always make the assumption and the assumption that God is not with us. So things start to unravel and we say, God's not with me. He doesn't know me. He's lost my GPS. He's, he doesn't care. Yet the unbelievable truth of Scripture is that God is most powerfully present even when He seems to be most apparently absent. God is most powerfully present even when He seems to be most apparently absent. Even when you can't feel Him, He's there. He's working for your good. He's working for His own glory. So Joseph gets sold into slavery. He's now God lies told against him, and he's now in the bottom of a pit. They stripped him of his coat, but they didn't strip him of his identity. And he kept his identity even in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty. And now you get to this passage that's so powerful to me, and I put it in front of you. And, and Joseph, in, in Genesis chapter 40, is a powerful, powerful story. He's at a place where he's in prison. He makes two friends, the wine tester and there's a baker. They both have dreams. They come to Joseph and say, would you interpret the dreams? We don't have time to cover the baker's dream. It went really bad, but the wine taster had a great dream. He said, in three days, you're going to be delivered. You're going to get out of here. So the wine tester's excited. So Joseph said, I have one request of you. One request. I've been through hell and back. And he says to this man, when all goes well with you, when you get out, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews to here. I have done nothing to be put into this dungeon. Joseph is saying, I just got one thing. Just remember me. I did you a favor. Have you ever played that game with God before? Y'all never played that game? God, I just need one thing. God, if you just please heal my marriage. That's it. That's all I'm asking. One thing. I'm not asking a lot. Not a plethora. Not a multiplicity of variety here. Request. Just one. God, heal my marriage. God, bring my son back. God, bring my daughter back. God, touch our finances. God, if you could just do one thing, if you just heal me of this cancer. God, just this one thing, if you could get us out of this nasty financial mess. God, just this one thing, if you could help me get this job. God, just this one thing. Several years ago, my wife got pregnant with our third, which we were really planning for. And um, we've already had two. I call her fertile myrtle. 
She's always been like, as soon as we tried, it's like, I mean, she's pregnant. And uh, never had a problem, never had a difficulty. So she gets pregnant and we, uh, some of y'all thought that was funny. So we, we get to this place where we're, you know, six, seven weeks in. And so uh, probably a little bit foolishly, we went ahead and announced that we never had any problems. So we celebrated at church and we moving into the month of December. And it's the day the Advent starts. We're doing Advent family devotionals. And we go to the doctor and... Uh, you know, we've gone so many times. I know how this thing goes. And so we get in and they do the ultrasound and, and the lady's messing around with the screen. And I could tell something wasn't right by the way she was doing it. Been there enough to know that. And she's kind of turning the screen to the side and thinking, what's wrong? And she wouldn't answer me. And she finally walks out of the room and the doctor invites us into the office and says, hey, um, the, the heartbeat is going, but don't freak out. It seems to be not where it's supposed to be. And the growth, even at this point early, should, should be a lot further. And... and um, and so you need to come back. And so we come back three days later. I just had one thing. This is my one thing. You ever had that one thing? I just had that one thing. I just said, God, just, just this one thing. Let this baby live. I don't want my, my wife to go through that. Just, just let this heart's, baby's heart just be beating. That's it. Simple. You're, you're resurrected from a grave. Of course you can do that. Breathe. Just, just do it. You ever had those one things? Just, just breathe. Just, just let the baby live. Let's just, you're the God of resurrection, please. Just this one thing. And the doctor came back into the room and took him about 10 seconds to say the heartbeat's going down. That would have been a little bit easier, I think, if we had just went in and it was gone. But then we went through a month process of every few days just watching the child get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And then we wait a few months and we get pregnant again. So we make our move to Woodstock and we're up on exit nine going into the doctor. And my wife has no anxiety, feels really good about this. We haven't, of course, told anybody by this point, and so they go in and do the ultrasound, and I'm sitting there next to, the, to, to my wife, and, and uh, we're sitting there, and I could tell the lady's moving the deal, and you know her face is, doesn't look so positive. And I looked at my wife, and they just confessed to her, I'm so sorry. There's no heartbeat this time. And I looked at the pain on my wife's face, and as a husband, I felt so helpless can't do nothing. Here's Joseph. Just this one thing. But verse 23 says, the chief cupbearer did not remember him. Ever been there? One thing. Ah! He forgot him. My guess is today that there are people who are haunted by the fact that God could have done something in your life, but for whatever reason, he didn't. He could have, but he didn't. He could have, but he didn't. And that's really important because this is so huge to the Christian life, church. If you don't figure this out, you're always going to hit this in your spiritual walk with God. What do you do when life doesn't turn out the way you think life should turn out? And it comes down to this. Are you going to decide to put your faith in God's identity or are you going to put your faith in God's activity? And there's a huge difference, a monster difference, a magnanimous difference. If you put your faith in God's activity for the circumstances of your life, then you're going to be constantly on a roller coaster ride. If the enemy knows that you have your faith and security in your feelings, he's going to make you more nervous than a termite and a yo-yo. You're going to be up one day and down the next day and up the next day and down the next day. And you're going to think God's abandoned you and God's not around and he doesn't know and he doesn't care because why? Life isn't turning out the way you 
want life to turn out. But when you put your faith in God's identity and who God says God is, regardless of what's going on in my life circumstantially, regardless of the situation in my life, there is a God that's with me. There is a God that his scripture speaks true. He will never leave me nor forsake me. That even though he seems apparently absent, he is powerfully present. He's available and he is a God who will never leave me nor forsake me. Are you going to put your faith in God's activity or faith in God's identity? It's a big difference. It's a big, big difference. You get to 1 Peter chapter 4. I love this passage of Scripture. I want to share some things with you the Lord's teaching me. He's been growing me and changing me. I feel like I'm constantly changing. Anybody else feel that way? Changing nonstop. We're not static people, are we? We're very dynamic. You had not changed in about the last five years or something wrong with that. I need to do some repenting. That's what repentance is. It's changing, isn't it? Changing our mind, changing our attitude. A few years back, um, I was on a mission trip to the Philippines. I love the Philippines. Pastor Chad, is, Michelle planted a church there in the Philippines as well in a province called Cavite. And I was there in Makati City in an apartment. Makati City is like to Manila, like New York, uh, Manhattan is to New York City. It's like the, the high rises. And we're there in Makati City. We're meeting with a group of Believers from around the world, I think there were 16 nations represented, and we're in the apartment of a missionary that we knew really well, and it was a powerful day. I mean, it was deeply changed. Our students are there. I'm there with high school and college students, and they're praying. We're spirit-filled people. That's who we are. The Lord's teaching. The Lord's leading. Prophetic words are moving. We're just giving space and environment for God to minister, and students are crying, and they're ministering to one another, and the Spirit of God is speaking and strengthening people, and we had come to the Philippines to train other leaders, and it was a breathtaking environment. When I go to the Philippines, the church is so beautiful there. People are so selfless. And I'm always saying, God, I want to be a part of a church with that much self, or selflessness and that much sacrifice. God, make me like these people. Next July, we're going we're gonna to take a mission trip from here to the Philippines, and we'll let you know more about that in the next few weeks. But, but I've always enjoyed being there so greatly. And we're sitting there in that room, and you can imagine what's about to happen to all the Westerner minds. There's an Easterner there. He's from China. He lives and his parents live in a province just outside of Beijing. And uh, you could tell he had this inner tempest building in him. His English was a little bit choppy. And our students are sitting around in this living room. And he finally can't hold it anymore. And he spoke up and he started describing his movement. Thousands of in his area are gathering to worship each week. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. And he said... With tears flowing down his face, he said, my parents right now are receiving more persecution than they've ever received. And he said these words. And when he said it, man, it just, woo, it's like I never hear that in America. He said, would you please pray that my parents will embrace suffering for the glory of Christ? Now, for a Westerner, it was awesome for 18-year-olds to hear that. Would you pray that my parents will embrace suffering for the glory of Christ? And I thought, you know what? That's all over the New Testament. That's so biblical. It's all over the New Testament. We don't talk about it a lot in America, but every book talks about suffering as being a good thing. We're supposed to embrace suffering. We're supposed to embrace pain. We persevere through it, but we're supposed to embrace it. You know, it's a good thing, he said, to rejoice even in it. And I thought, you know what? If you have a group of people who embrace suffering for the glory of Christ, you have an unstoppable force. I mean, really, you do. If you have a group of people who embrace it as for God's glory, you're unstoppable. Why do we quit things? Because they get too hard. Oh, it's too difficult. I started to suffer. I got rejected by my friends, so I quit. But what if you have a group of people who say, I like 
to suffer and I rejoice in my suffering because Jesus said it would come. And I have my mind on eternity and my reward is great and I'm living for eternity. So every time I suffer, there's a reward and I understand that there's a reward for me for what I'm suffering. The apostles were that way. Acts chapter 4, I read it again over and over this week. They were beat, flogged. They were literally beat to like a pulp and literally, and the Bible said they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And the whole world is going, how do we stop these guys? We beat them and they rejoice. They like it. They celebrate it. That's an unstoppable force. And what greater opportunity for the witness of the gospel in a day and age than for us to embrace it, to rejoice in it. Folks, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand preaching the gospel in about five years in our nation is going to be considered a hate crime. The way we're going, it's a hate crime. And the reality is, instead of us praying, oh, God, God, why don't we say, God, we willingly embrace whatever you're doing, however you want to refine your church, let your witness shine brighter. Lord, we're a city on a hill. We cannot be hidden. We would never put our light under a bushel, but God, we will embrace. We will embrace what you're doing because we love you. He said we have to rejoice in this suffering. Think about it. These men are rejoicing. It's so opposite the way we think, isn't it? We do all we can to mitigate pain in America. Everything Small pain, we want pain relievers. Nonstop. We're taught, follow Jesus and you'll get this, this, and this. Folks, I was the product of that. Follow Jesus, you'll get this. It'll be great. And then what happens is we suffer or something goes wrong and we think something's off. I talk to Christians who go through difficult and they think they've missed it. No, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You're right in the middle of it. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, look at this. This is so powerful. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. First of all, let me read Philippians 1.29. He said, For to you has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. Isn't that an interesting scripture? God granted unto us to suffer, so suffering is a gift, isn't it? That's an interesting scripture. He granted unto us. Why? Because first of all, suffering glorifies God, and suffering exposes sin in our life that needs to be dealt with. Even though... Job was a righteous man. He still had bitterness and bitterness toward God. And yeah, his wife said, curse God and die. And yeah, everyone tried to interpret his crisis, which tells us that, that you can't ever interpret someone's crisis as being a result of their sin in their life because he was blameless. But yet there was a depth of sin. And in Job 42, he gets to the point where he said, my eyes, or excuse my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. That's what suffering does, doesn't it? Causes things to become clear. Causes sin to become clear. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. He said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm. Everybody say arm. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sinning. Wow. Since Christ suffered in the flesh. That's what Jesus did. He's the pioneer. He's the captain of our salvation. He's our example. He said, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. When you think of arm, you think of armor. You're a baseball player. You're a catcher. You put on a helmet. You put it on the front. You put on, uh, you know, uh, knee savers. And you put on shin guards. And, and every time, isn't the temptation when someone's in armor, you want to take a bat and hit them in the head. Somebody puts a helmet on. It's like, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me. Right? And you want to hit them. You want to hit them in the front. You want to do it. Why? Because the whole principle and the whole idea is you can hit somebody with armor and it doesn't hurt. 
What would have hurt a few minutes ago but doesn't hurt now because you're armed with this. See, when you have the mentality that Christ suffered and I'm going to suffer, then suffering comes, it don't hurt like it used to hurt. It didn't hurt like it was supposed to hurt. It didn't hurt like it hurt in the season before because you've armed yourself with this thinking. You put on the helmet of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said in John 15. I'm waiting for it. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you were of the world, they would accept you as the world, but you're not of the world. If they persecuted me, they are going to persecute you. They're going to persecute you. Think about this ahead of time. Listen, believers, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, rejoice in that. You got to arm yourself with this thinking. Jesus said, I did not come to be served. I didn't come to the earth to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. That was his mindset coming to the earth. What was it? He didn't come to the earth expecting everyone's going to love me and everybody's going to worship me and everybody's going to accept me and everybody's going to accept my grace. No, he said, I can't to serve and I knew I'd be rejected. That's the gospel. I would go after people who would reject me. And if we entered into our church gathering saying, I'm going to give my life for the people at that church. I'm going to sacrifice and be selfless. Then we would never be let down again by any church. The reason we're let down is because we don't enter into church the way Jesus entered the planet. If we got dwelling place people, every person to attend gatherings and to come to church the way Jesus came to the planet, we'd never have an opportunity to be let down. But see, the psychological society called America has seduced us to ask the wrong questions. Oh, what can this church do for me? What can it do for my kids? Well, how can it touch this? What can I... And see, what we've done is who is at the center? Me. Me. How can it minister to me? What can it do for me. What if we came in and said, hey, I'm coming to give my life for those people at that church. I'm coming ready to serve. I'm coming ready to be selfless. Then what happens is we would never be let down. We would never be let down because that's why we know we're coming. If we went into the world and we ministered the gospel with that mentality, arming ourselves, I know I'm going to be rejected like Jesus, but you know what? That's okay because I actually want to become like him and I can't become like him unless I experience what he experienced. It's okay. They're not going to like me. They're not going to accept it, but most of us don't arm ourselves with that way of thinking. What did Peter say? Arm yourself. Arm yourself. Put the helmet on. He goes on and he says, for whoever, verse 1, has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sinning. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Listen to that. Arm yourselves. Same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has stopped sinning for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that means you cannot stop sinning unless you suffer you cannot stop sinning unless you suffer there's purpose behind the pain god uses the pain to bring out of us deep-rooted sin you can't cease from sinning unless you Suffer. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before. But it requires 
suffering if you'll cease from sin. Oh, yeah, yeah, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Yes, he is making you a slave to what is right. He said you're, you're members of, of, of righteousness. You, 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 but, but will you suffer in conquering your sin? Yes, absolutely. If you don't suffer, you won't conquer your sin. Have you ever seen someone come off of uh, like hard drugs, like heroin, meth? I did a prison ministry for almost two and a half years of my life at a detention facility where people were held before they went to the penitentiary during trial. And I was in pod D and we would get many, many guys who would have to detox medically. You ever seen somebody come off of heroin or meth or cocaine? When they come off of hard drugs like that, you don't come off of them without suffering. You got to suffer. I mean, it's tough. I mean, they're screaming. I went to the mental ward multiple times for people, teenagers who are coming off of meth. And it's like, uh, uh, you're going nuts. You don't feel like you're going to even make it. You know ahead of time, I'm going into detox from this and this is going to be miserable. And how many times in Christian ministry have I counseled people and they say, Pastor Craig, I prayed that God would take away my desire for alcohol. And he didn't. I prayed God would take away my desire for pornography, and he didn't. Oh, so basically you wanted God to get rid of the sin without you suffering. You wanted him to get rid of all the sin without you suffering, right? That's what you want. Yeah, can God instantaneously deliver? He does, but often he delivers not from it, but right through the middle of it. Right through the middle of the issue. Oh, I prayed that God would get rid of my lust and desire, and he didn't. It didn't, it didn't take it away. What, what are you saying? What do you say? What are you wanting God to do? I want God to get rid of the sin without me suffering. I want all the desire to be gone. You do not defeat your sin unless you suffer. It's suffering to kick pornography. Because you got that phone and you're, you're literally suffering. If you could see it in the spirit realm, oh my God, everything in me doesn't want to do it, but why is it so accessible? Oh, you're just suffering. God, I don't want to do it. No, no, I don't want to. I, I'm not that person anymore. I'm not a slave to that sin. It's suffering. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's suffering to kick the date because you won't compromise your values. It's suffering to be single a little bit later than you thought you would ever been single, but you're not willing to compromise your values. And you had a date on Friday night, but you said no to the day, and I'll stay at home, baby, by myself. But, but God, I just know that, 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 God, you have a plan for me. It's suffering. It's suffering to kick alcohol. Folks, I've been it. I've been my whole family. You've been used to coming home and drinking alcohol. You do it secretly, maybe. You don't want anybody in the church to know that you do it, but you come home and you have a hard day. You have a difficult day, and every temptation is to go to the coping mechanism that's easy and to drink the bottle and you're sitting there and you're in this struggle God I don't want to do it God I don't want to do it Lord I know you've made me a, a slave to righteous it is suffering to overcome sin it is suffering he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sinning God uses pain to eliminate sin He uses it. There's purpose behind the pain. So he said, arm yourself beforehand. He goes on in verse 3. Look at this. He said, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Notice this. Verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Anybody had friends that were surprised? Why you didn't keep on doing what you used to do with them? They're surprised. Notice this. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For the time that is past suffices 
for doing what the Gentiles do. I want to ask you a question. Can you honestly say that? The time that has passed suffices. Are you sitting here today while you're seated, while you're listening and saying, you know what? All that garbage I was involved in in my previous life, I've had enough. I'm done with it. I don't want that in my life anymore. I, I don't want it. I've had enough to know I don't want it. Or are you in the room secretly going, no, I'm going to go a little bit further in this. If I could just dabble a little bit more, I kind of miss it uh, just a little bit longer. I want to build my testimony a little bit, and then I'll turn it around. I know God's dealing with that sin, but uh, or are you a person that says, I've had enough. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of living that way, and I'm tired of experiencing that pain. I'm done with that, God. I don't need it anymore. I actually want God. I actually desire God. I'm tired of living in the tension of wanting both. I'm tired of living in the tension of wanting what the old nature desires and wanting what God you have. I'm tired of it, God. I've had enough. If we're honest, there's probably people here today that are still saying, oh, I'll wait. Maybe later. Maybe later I'll follow. And you find yourself going right back to it. And Peter says it's like a dog that returns to its vomit. Or a pig, after being washed, goes back to the mud. A pig gets washed, and it doesn't matter if you wash him off on the outside. Externally, he goes back to the dirt. He goes back to the mud. I'm going to go back to the mud. That's the point of this passage that we were once slaves to sin. You just keep going back to it because that's your nature. You couldn't get rid of it because that's your nature. You were subject to that sin. That was your nature. You were like a pig that kept wallowing in the mud and kept going back to the mud. And hear me, he can change your very nature today. What he offers you today is to not wash you off on the external. He offers to send his Holy Spirit. You're not a mixed creation. You're not an old creation adding on some new creation. You behold all things have become new. He puts his spirit inside of you. And what happens is you went back to that same junk for so long. Why does the pig go back to the mud? Because that's his nature. It's his nature. He can't help it. He just keeps going back to it. You're a pig. You're a slave to sin. But what Christ offers you, my God, you got to get this in your heart today. He says to you, I will offer my Holy Spirit and I will put my spirit inside of you. And now you become a slave no longer to what's wrong, but you literally gravitate to what's right. Your nature wants to please him. You're nature wants to do what you never used to want to do. And then all of a sudden, you can't do that anymore. You look at it, and all your friends look at it, and you used to like it, and it used to look good, but now you just get sick in your stomach when you even recount what you used to do. You get sick in your stomach when you see what your friends used to do. Why? You've seen the mud. You've looked at the mud. You've been around the mud. You used to love the mud, but I've had enough of the mud. I've had enough of the issues. I've had enough of the issue of the pain of my past. God, I want to become a slave. I'm subject to a new spirit. Come on, somebody. I'm sorry. This is not an external washing. This is not us coming into church every week and receiving a bath and gravitating back to sin. It's saying, God, I accept your spirit. Lord, open up the windows of heaven and pour out your spirit on me. Make me subject to what is right. That's what he offers us. That's what he offers us. I want to change you from the inside out. I'm telling you, something changed on the inside. When I met Jesus at 16 years old, I didn't have to have anybody tell me what to do. I didn't have to have a pastor following up with me 13 times that week to get me to come back. I was there before the church ever opened up. I'm a slave to what's right. I want to please you, God. I used to love those things, but I look at them and I'm disappointed and I'm burned and I hate it now, God. Something has changed on the inside. And when I think of our church, here's my thought. It's so easy to be in a room in an environment like this where you're constantly being washed off. But what happens when you're not here? Because this doesn't have much mud. What happens when you're around some mud? 
What do you want to do? What's the desire of your heart? Are you longing? Have you been so changed by the Holy Spirit you long for what's right? Have you been so changed by the Holy Spirit you long to do what God wants you to do? I shared my testimony video last week. When I met Jesus at 16 and I had multiple people come to me this week and say, Craig, I, I never knew that's what your history looked like. I just thought you grew up in church. I never knew you were involved in drugs and alcohol and had a history of major abuse. And I don't know how to say this other than just telling you. Folks, my parents had nothing to do with my relationship with God. You'll say, oh, well, you changed because... God spoke to you or you changed because you know something in you uh, you know your parents had to to do with this or or maybe some somebody had uh, a part in, in making you desire God and no just, just understand I didn't come to God because of anyone else I didn't come to God or be coerced or pressured into accepting Jesus Christ. And I was so struck with this reality again yesterday. Man, it just so opened my heart. It was like David called it the spacious place. You never graduate from it. He said, lead me in that place, that place of salvation. And I was sitting there yesterday thinking about, you know what? I fell in love with Jesus so deeply at 16. I just fell in love with Jesus. It was so personal. I saw him. I, I, my whole family could leave God. I don't care. It was such a passion. It was such a burden. I'd never known Jesus. I'd never known peace like that. It didn't matter somebody was going to accept Jesus or my friends would make fun of me. It didn't matter if people were going to follow me or not. I said, I don't care if anyone else believes. All of me was crying out, Abba God, you're my father. You have put your spirit in me. And I'm just here today to say to some of us in the room, maybe you have graduated and moved beyond that place and you need God to revive your spirit today. I want you to imagine and think back what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus. Come on, long before a church hurt you, long before any doubt filled your mind and you were just open you were so passionate for Jesus. You were so hungry for Jesus. You were so passionate for the leadership of God's Spirit. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about. When you were at a place saying, God, I want my streams back. God, I want my joy back. God, I want my tears back. Some of you have been praying and saying, God, I want my tears back. I used to weep in your presence. Why do you feel so distant? What has happened? Why have I moved? Why have I stumbled? God, I long for it again. Lord, I want to be in your presence. Lord, I want my peace back. I want my passion back. God, I want you. You. May all my streams be in you. May all my streams. I was in the Georgia Dome yesterday. And I was there for an event called Stand Campaign. It was a prayer rally. Praying for America. And I was to pray with a team. I had the kids for the day, so I took my kids. It's interesting to take a six and a three-year-old through downtown Atlanta as a dad with billions of people, right? get in the Georgia Dome and take 48 bathroom breaks every hour. And I'm seated in the Georgia Dome. And it's very rare that I ever get to go to a gathering where I'm not thinking about what's next. And I was seated there and I love Clint Brown. Clint Brown started leading worship and a man from Africa, a missionary from Africa got up and began to pray in the spirit. Environment so lit, so charged. And I'm sitting there and my kids take off their shoes and they're so tired because it's the afternoon nap time and they take off their shoes and I'm sitting in my seat about the third row right there in the end zone. Knox is on my right, my right knee and Marley's on my left. They put their heads back and they both begin to fall asleep. 
And I tell you folks, right there in the Georgia Dome, I'm just seated there in the Holy Spirit of God. You know what I'm talking about. The Spirit of God, of course, He lives within us. But the Holy Spirit of God descended through the rafters of that Georgia Dome. And literally, as the Spirit of God began to build me, I'm thinking, God, I've been in a painful place. God, we've been in a dry place. But as I was sitting there, the Spirit of God began to well up inside of me. And I had so much gratitude for God. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Such gratitude. I felt the strength of God building in me. And I wasn't giving God to praise through my lips. I was giving Him through my eyes and I felt liquid fire roll down my cheeks and I began to taste the salty lips, salty taste of tears on my lips and I began to say oh God thank you so much thank you so much Lord help us to understand that there is a nation around us that don't understand how personal you are this is what I want for us church he wants to he wants to fill you he wants to baptize you he is so personal I know some of us have never had that type of encounter but it's available today and I just began to well up I wasn't saying a word folks it was growing that was inutterable but I'm here to tell you today when you get to a place where you have groanings which cannot be uttered they're often prayers which cannot be refused that's that is a trap like a magnet to the presence of God and God begins to do a work in you and God begins to strengthen you and right there in my seat for about an hour I just sat there and cried and the spirit of God built me up the spirit of God helped me to overcome pain and there is purpose in the pain God whatever I suffer God whatever I face however lonely I feel Lord I do it because I love you and Lord you've saved me, redeemed me changed me, set me on a course with your path. Lord I rejoice I embrace whatever it is whatever it is God I embrace I embrace whatever you're doing. Do you have this morning a calm acceptance of whatever God's doing in your life right now whatever his will is God my streams are in you my streams are in you are all your streams in Jesus Right now, he can feel that dry place. He's the psalmist said he is the Lord who anoints us with fresh oil. Right there, while I'm even preaching, the Spirit of God can anoint you. The Spirit of God can touch the depth of dryness. Whatever it is, whatever lie of the enemy and every word that's been spoken against his church, may it be nullified and struck down. Whatever lie the enemy's told you that the habitual sin in your life would never leave you. I'm telling you, it's a lie from the pit of hell. And God, in the midst of suffering and challenge and trial and tribulation, you can count it all as joy. You can know that God, through that suffering, through that trial, is producing in you hope. He's producing in you a character, a character endurance, and that hope does not disappear point that's the truth of God's word God is working all things for our good he goes on in verse 7 this is amazing he says the end of all things is at hand Jesus is about to come therefore be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers notice that isn't that interesting we're prayer people aren't we is verse 7 something we've lost in this generation? We jump from one thing to another to another. We've lost the ability to focus. We've lost the ability to focus. Notice this. Interesting verse. The end of all things at hand. In other words, this thing to be over soon. Therefore, here it is. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Interesting. Because usually when we think of prayer, we think of prayer as a means to an end. I pray so I can get this. Here, prayer is the goal. Sober-minded and self-controlled is to serve the prayer, not the prayer serving the self-controlled. In other words, the end of this is prayer. It's not pray to get something. It's to be self-controlled so I can pray. Prayer is the goal. Communion with God is the goal. Connection with God is the goal. The goal is being in tune with God, but 
When you're filling your mind with so much junk and not exercising self-control. When you've got to see every movie that comes out of the movie theater. And you'll do it at midnight on the night before. And then every, every song that comes out, you've got to listen to. And every YouTube video that anybody else has seen, you've got to see it. And then you want to see what everybody's doing on Facebook. And you, you go through your Facebook and you spend 30 minutes on your Facebook. And then it's time to pray and you try to tune this stuff out of your mind. And boom, boom, bam, 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 bam. You have all these thoughts. Why? Because you've not exercised self-control. Listen to me. That's why, listen, your prayer time and how good your prayer time is, is largely dependent on what you did beforehand. Your prayer time depends on what you do before and exercise self control. You ever done that? Come on, bam, bam, thought. Because you've you spent an hour on Facebook and then you go to try to pray. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. How do you tune in? Impossible. All of these thoughts, all of these distractions. That's why suffering brings clarity, right? Scarcity brings clarity. Because when you don't have much, you realize what you really do have. That's why suffering and pain can be used to what? Get your focus. To get you tuned in with God. So you can control that stimulation. So that when you're there, you're zoned in with God. You're in, in with God. Why? Because he said, all things are at end. And what you want when Jesus returns is a good prayer life. Number one thing you want when Jesus returns is a prayer life. You want connection with him. Why? Because if you've got connection with him and he knows it, and God's already been speaking to you and you've been speaking to him when he returns, you just look at him and say, hey, you and I just were talking. That's what you want right, don't you? Prayer life. Connection life. I'm known by you, God, and you know my heart. You know I'm zoning in on you. It's like those basketball games. Y'all seen them? You watched the Final Four last night? Man gets up, he's in an arena of 20,000 people. Man, they got some crazy things. They put heads on, they put flamingos. I saw two flamingos rubbing their noses like they were kissing, you know, their beaks. And they're behind the goal, and they're, you get these big fingers, and they got thunder sticks, and everybody's just going ballistic. A couple weeks ago, this high school in Illinois, they, they put this sheet on this guy and literally pulled this other full-grown man out from under him like he was delivering a baby, right? And he was right behind him. It's the craziest thing. And they're trying to do all these things to try to get the focus. And here's this guy on the free throw. He's only 19 years old. He's got a 75% free throw percentage. And he's just sitting there, and he's like, I want to block that out. I can't worry about that. I mean, he's just, everybody's buying for his attention, and he's just focused on the front of the rim. Uh, i gotta, I, I got to do that. I've done this 100 times. I've done this 1,000 times. And that's what life is. All of it's trying to buy your attention. And what you've got to say is, I'm self-controlled. I'm, I'm controlling the stimulation. I'm sober-minded so that I'm zoned in on you, God. I'm zoned in on you. Maybe you've been distracted for so long, so you're just looking at God and say, God, I want communion with you. That's why it's so important to do it early in the morning before everything buys for your time. He goes on in verse 12. Look at this. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Did you see that? When the fiery trial comes, don't act like something weird's happening. Like what? My friends are rejecting me in high school because I served Jesus? Why am I suffering right now? Why is my family going through pain? We are in a war, you guys. No one stands in the middle of the war and says, man, why is everyone shooting at me? I don't understand this. I'm on the front lines of, of AK-47s. I'm like, why are you shooting at me? Am I, I mean, we're in a war. Don't consider the fiery trial, a fiery trial strange. It's not strange. And here's what's so amazing. When he says, don't consider the fiery trials strange, he's really talking about a fiery trial. Because this was written by Peter at the same time that Nero was taking Christians and putting big sticks 
up their rear to where they sagged and literally were impaled. Then he would pour gasoline on them and light their heads on fire so that he would light up his garden. And people are looking at him and saying, oh, look what they're doing to this guy. And Peter's like, are you serious? Why is that strange to you? It's what they did to Jesus. Why wouldn't you expect this? Of course this is going to happen. This is Christianity, right? Don't consider it something strange. That's what Jesus did. He went to the cross, folks. He was perfected in his mission through a cross. So don't consider it fiery trial strange. It's, it's not something strange happening to you. In fact, he says, expect it. Expect it. We're in this weird Christian American culture, please hear me, where we get surprised when we suffer. We expect health and wealth and, and luxury, and that's not what Jesus promised here on earth, folks. It's not what he's... Uh, it's a hard first message to start off pain management series, isn't it? Whew. But here's my problem. Here's my deal. G Peter's saying, not only expect it, in fact, rejoice in it. And my problem is this, and my concern is this. If we don't arm people with a proper theology of suffering, when the going gets tough, they're going to leave Jesus. And they never came to Jesus in the first place. They came on the wrong terms. And there is a day and age, folks, where we've got to understand, no matter what comes my way, it's not I'll follow Jesus if, it's I'm following Jesus even if no one else follows. It's always God, I'm following no matter what. Why? Because that have a proper theology of suffering and that God's always going to take care of every need and you're never going to face any pain the reality of it is that when we arm ourselves with the proper theology we say God I'm going to rejoice in it not only do I expect it but I rejoice in it and I'm not going to complain about it but I'm going to praise notice that I know that's hard I know that's difficult but that's the gospel that's the gospel God I'm serving you even if, he goes on, look at him, he closes in verse 13 and 14. He said, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. <laughs> wow. So not America. That's so counterintuitive. Ooh, it's fresh, isn't it? He says, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. That's what Christ taught. He taught this in the Beatitudes. You have to learn how to rejoice when you're suffering. Now he goes on in verse 15. He said, don't rejoice because you suffered for your sins. Like, oh, I got a hangover today. I rejoice in it. No, no, no. Suffer because you do the right thing. And then I thought about this. Rebecca, would you just come? All through the New Testament, it teaches this. Suffer. Rejoice in suffering. Know that your suffering produces patience. Patience, perseverance, per perseverance, character, character, hope. And in 12 years of Christian ministry, have I ever had one person in my whole life that when I was suffering in ministry, and I have suffered in ministry, difficult seasons, I've suffered whatever. Has anyone in ministry ever come alongside me and told me to rejoice in it? Ever. Has anyone ever done that to you? No. Why? Because in America, when you go through a difficult time, Christians come along and they go, it's going to get better. It'll get better. The sun's going to come out. It'll be better. It'll be okay. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, we can change that. Somebody did you wrong at your, at, at, at your job. Let's retaliate. We'll malign. We'll, we'll put circumstances. No, 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 no. When's the last time you've been suffering and someone came alongside of you and said, Man, it's been tough. You must be stoked right now. 
You must be about to jump up inside. See how counterintuitive that is? We're actually called to rejoice in difficult times. Have you ever had someone come to you and say, man, it's been the worst year of your life? Wow, you must be probably praising God like you've never done. You must be so excited. Why? Because I couldn't find a scale this week. But the Bible says every light and momentary affliction and trouble is what? Working for us an exceeding great glory that surpasses the weight of any trial and tribulation. So you can take whatever difficulty, miscarriage, you can take pain, you can take divorce and throw it up on the scale. But then when you put God's glory and that it will be revealed to you and in you and in us, it does not even compare. They're working for us an exceeding weight of glory that far surpasses. So when you say, I'm going through trouble, well, praise God, because you know what? Your mind's on eternity, and you know that you're working a reward. Every suffering you go through, it's working a reward. I read again the autobiography of Bruce Olson this week. He was the guy who went to Venezuela, the Molotone Indians, and he tells the story when he was in a hut, and they're shooting at him. He won most of those villages to Christ. They were shooting arrows, and he speaks. Oh, man, I just read it and began to cry. He speaks of laying down in the hut one night when all of the Indians are against him, and the arrows are piercing and hitting the edge of his skin, but it was not going through his body. And he said, right there in the midst of all that chaos, all of it faded away, and Jesus Christ walked into my hut and sat next to me because there was a fellowship of suffering. There's a knowledge of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the suffering that you can't get from a sermon. You can't get from learning from somebody else. You can't get from secondhand knowledge. You have to suffer yourself. You've got to go through it yourself. You've got to go through Friday. And I know Friday ain't good. I know some of you wonder, where's all the pain? You've been mocked on. You've been spit on. You've been going through hell and high water. Every time you look up, somebody's throwing another persecution at you. And you feel like you can't take no more. But I'm telling you, Friday was just the beginning of the weekend. It's not the end of the weekend. There's an end of the weekend and it's called Sunday. And why do we worship on Sunday because Jesus did something brand new. There is resurrection on the backside of your suffering. There is an eternal weight of glory on the backside of your difficulty, on the backside of your trial so you can get in the middle of Friday and say, God, I lift my hands and I thank God that, Lord, every trial and every difficulty and every pain I face is working for me in eternal glory. God, my mind's on eternity. My mind's on eternity. I thought this week, what if we plant churches around the globe? We are going to plant churches around the globe. What if we plant churches around the globe and one of the places that we go is very hostile to Christians and somebody gets their leg cut off. Can you imagine a Christian who continues to minister with their leg cut off and then all of a sudden they're thinking about Jesus returning? Can you imagine the power of that moment when you're standing there with one leg and Jesus splits the eastern sky and you look at him, how awesome moment, say, man, I'm one of yours. I feel like Jesus. I did what you did. I, I suffered like the men in Hebrews chapter 11. I was sawed in two. I had the difficulties, but yet, God, I looked. Can you imagine? the? What if you had cancer in your body for 15 years and you didn't wonder why God didn't heal it but all of a sudden you're standing there with bloody lips but you're still standing and you got cancer ravaging your body and Jesus opens up the sky. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine that you suffer with Jesus the strength and the, and the restitution and the reconciliation and the joy that your soul? He says rejoice. Rejoice when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because your joy is not based on what your current reality is. It's based on eternal truth of what Jesus accomplished. Final four or five years ago, Wisconsin is literally just getting destroyed. And it started up the baseball. No, sorry, sorry, it was the backwards. It was the fall, and it was a football game. 
there in Minnesota, the Vikings were playing. I forget who they're playing. And the Minnesota Vikings are playing and all the fans are up in the stands and they're just getting destroyed. The football team is just getting destroyed. I think it was like 50 something to 10. And in the second half, the announcers didn't understand what was going on because the whole arena bursted in joy. I mean, people are celebrating their teams getting destroyed. And they found out that the people in the stands had radio sets and they were listening to what was happening in the playoffs for baseball, the Milwaukee Brewers, and their team was winning in the series. And they were joyful even though the team in front of them is getting destroyed because their joy was based on not their current reality but something they were hearing from another area. That's, that's believers. It's not what's in front of me right now. It's not what situation I'm facing. I have a joy. I'm tuned into a different frequency. And the frequency is that God is working all things for my good. Would you come? Paul said, I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3.10. Would you journey with me just this last moment as we close? What if the night that Jesus was betrayed when he told his disciples about the cross? What if he would have said to you, you imagine you being in the room and he looked over at you, he said, uh, tonight when I go to the cross, I, want, I would like for you to go with me. Would you want it? Would you enjoy it? Think about it. Paul said, I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't get saved out of the fire. He became fellowship with them through the fire. And imagine, Travis, that Jesus said, I want you to go with me. And when Jesus goes to that whipping post and he kneels, and they take the cat and nine tails and whip him on the back and tear flesh from his side. Three times would have been bad. Five times would have been really bad. Ten times would have made somebody really sick. By the time you get to 30 stripes, people are puking their guts out. And imagine you being on the other side of the pole watching Jesus receiving the same thing. Could you, you want to talk about koinonia? You want to talk about fellowship? You want to talk about the deepest level of fellowship? Suffer with somebody. Could you imagine Jesus now picks up the cross and walks the Via Della Rosa and he asks you to do it alongside of him and now you got your cross? And when he falls to his knees and he's hurting, doesn't feel like he can take another step, he looks over at you and you all lock eyes and you get back up together and start suffering together. And then you get to the cross and they stretch out his arms and pull his shoulders out of socket and place him on a cross and suspend it between heaven and hell. Literally, he's lifted up before all men. It's his hour of glorification. And you're there on the cross next to him and you look across and you meet your maker's eyes. Folks, do you, can you imagine the security you would feel if you suffered with Jesus in that way? No one would be able to deter you for the rest of your life. Paul said, I want to know him in this fellowship of his suffering. Why? Because God works in crisis. God works in pain. He said, my grace is sufficient. I don't know if you, but if you've ever raised your, would you raise your hand if you've ever prayed, God made me like Jesus? Can I ask that question? Well, listen, friends, you know what you asked for? You asked for a cross. He perfected Jesus' mission through a cross. What makes you think he's going to use a different tool to perfect you? He's going to use a cross. It's going to cause you to deny and trust. Deny and trust. Deny 
because God's great plan is to get you out of self-sufficiency. Come on, moms and dads. Have you ever been in a place where you just can't do it? No person can help you. No number, no hotline. You can't get a counsel from somebody. You just, your marriage is, you just can't do it. God says you're in a perfect place. Away from self-sufficiency, say, God, I trust you. Look how the last verse, I'll just read it to you as we close. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. Everybody say entrust to a faithful creator while doing good. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.